This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, April 29th, 2016, episode 23, concerning some scandalous priests, a sainted astrologer, and the dove of death. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today we have a little bit of a grab bag of tales from the Lannercost Chronicle, uh, as well as a little extra bit from uh, Orderic Vitalis, making his Medieval Death Trip debut. Running thread that's stitched through most of the stories here is of priests behaving in unpriestly ways. Uh, and then there's a random death omen thrown in, because that's how the Lannercost Chronicle rolls. Uh, we've been here with Lannercost a couple of times before. Uh, first in episode two, which had the fittingly eclectic title concerning another miracle cure for extreme swelling, a sinful clerk, and some lightning bolts. Uh, and then again in episode 16, concerning coin eating and a demon child. Uh, and just a reminder... If you would like to peruse our old episodes, uh, you should be able to find them in iTunes or whatever podcatcher app you use, Um, and you can also find and listen to them directly on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. In fact, there's a list of tags in the sidebar there that you can use to see all the primary sources that have been featured so far, including the Lannercost Chronicle. Click on one of those tags, and you can see all the episodes that that source has appeared in. But back to business, the Lannercost Chronicle is a great repository for these kind of short, punchy, and unusual anecdotes. It has some long narratives in there too, um, especially concerning the Scottish-English wars of the 13th century, but it loves to catalog little memorable incidents. Uh, And another run of these is what we'll hear today. But before we get to the Chronicle... Uh, I thought I'd talk a little bit about one of the unpriestly activities featured in these stories, and that would be having a mistress or concubine. The lecherous clergyman, whether priest or bishop, monk or friar, or even on occasion nun or abbess, uh, is a literary trope that appears across the medieval genres, in fiction, like with Chaucer's Friar, as well as in historical writing, like in today's texts. And because it becomes a cultural cliché, accounts of allegedly historical debauchery are no doubt molded to suit the patterns of that cliché and the expectations it produces, just like the individual goodness or sanctity of a saint are all packaged up in the same basic formulas that you see time and again in hagiography. But clerical sex lives, sanctioned and unsanctioned, are assuredly a real phenomenon, and their qualities change as the culture changes. So when exactly does the cloud of scandal settle over this whole issue? Well, the first thing to reckon with is the idea of celibacy or abstaining from sexual activity. The requirement of celibacy for Catholic priests has been the subject of quite a lot of discussion and analysis recently, uh, both in the wake of these sexual abuse scandals Um, and as part of the pressure to open up the priesthood to a wider range of people, such as those who are or want someday to be married. Oh, and also women, of course. That would be the other major group that the priesthood could be opened up to, though there's no inherent conflict between allowing female priests and maintaining celibacy. 
Uh, and indeed, celibacy and marriage aren't mutually exclusive categories. If you picture the Venn diagram of the two states, all four combinations are possible. You can be unmarried and celibate, the sort of priestly state. You can be married and not celibate, which indeed would be the proper way to be for those who believe that marriage basically mandates reproduction. And, of course, you can be unmarried and not celibate, to the chagrin of moralists uh, this millennium and the last. But you can also be married and celibate, meaning you have a spouse but do not engage in sexual activity. Early theologians often described this as husband and wife living together as brother and sister. And it's a state you see promulgated in certain ascetic traditions and portrayed in some saints' lives. It's also the state of marriage for virtually every hacky nightclub comedian. In the debates about celibacy for Catholic priests, it's been highlighted that there isn't any specific biblical mandate that priests be celibate or unmarried. Um, and though some medieval reformers did try to argue that priestly marriage was a heretical practice, this position was never accepted by papal authorities. Indeed, if it had been, then Rome would have had to sever formal relations with the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, which did and does allow its priests to marry. And of course, most Protestant denominations allow for married clergy, though many medieval Catholics would have had no problem classifying Protestants as heretics, uh, but it would have had to have been for other theological reasons than having married clergy. Furthermore, clerical marriage was allowed in the early church, and continued well into the Middle Ages. Uh, as early as the 4th century, though, there were moves to prohibit the higher orders of clergy, especially bishops, uh, from marrying. And monastic orders generally prohibited marriage for anyone living according to a monastic rule. Um, but it would not have been surprising for your parish priest to be married uh, even in the 11th century. And it's not until the mid-12th century that church reformers pass ecclesiastical laws that finally clamped down on the practice fairly comprehensively and established the policy against clerical marriage that continues through to today in the Catholic Church. So why the turn against clerical marriage? Well, we can generalize the issue to two chief factors. The first involves the very deep roots of clerical celibacy. Um, both Judaism and the religions of the Greco-Roman world from which early Christianity emerged had strong concepts of ritual purity, which was necessary for participating in religious rites, uh, and these included requirements for sexual purity. Uh, and indeed, similar ideas are found in all sorts of religions all around the world. But for example, Leviticus chapter 15 specifies that anyone who has sex or comes into contact with stuff emitted by genitals, uh, which extends to menstruation and childbirth, as it happens, is unclean for at least the rest of that day, sometimes longer. And an unclean person cannot participate in ritual sacrifice or eat the food from that sacrifice. Now, it's noteworthy that this isn't, strictly speaking, a matter of morality or sin. It doesn't matter if it's perfectly sanctioned, virtuous, marital sex you've had. The uncleanness uh, that it produces is more like a physical condition rather than a state of sin. Uh, but you can see how ascetic movements, uh, Jewish as well as Christian, might latch onto that as evidence for the spiritual superiority of a life totally removed from any such contamination. This biblical prohibition 
also gets applied to the Eucharist as it develops its increasingly sacramental character in the early church, so that one who is ritually unclean because of sexual activity isn't allowed to administer the Eucharist. And that shades over into not being allowed to participate in other liturgical functions in the Mass. Um, so that enforces at least intermittent celibacy for those who are supposed to be involved in conducting Mass. And combined with the contempt for the flesh and its desires that a number of leading theologians and reformers espouse, it's easy to see how this simplifies into a blanket requirement for full-time celibacy. And given that celibate marriage is a lifestyle that, however much it might be praised in saintly legends, tends to be viewed with skepticism in real life, you can see how clerical marriage is the next domino to fall. And I said there were two chief factors. So beyond the privileging of celibacy, the other thing that brought the question of clerical marriage to a kind of crisis point in the 12th century is feudalism. Um, to cover this really briefly, once church property starts getting administered according to feudal rules and principles of vassalage, then you run into the problem of the wives and children of priests trying to possess churches as family property, uh, which can create lots of political problems, both with secular and ecclesiastical authorities. So better to make sure priests can't produce legitimate heirs to anything ever. Uh, there is also a pastoral rationalization, the idea that the true family of the priest is his parishioners and a priest with a biological family to look after as well isn't going to be able to shepherd his flock with the total devotion that they deserve, uh, which is a nice enough sentiment, I guess, but it's also kind of a slam on all the married priests and other denominations. Anyway, as inevitable as the process of phasing out clerical marriage may seem in retrospect, uh, that doesn't mean it went smoothly. Now, I'm going to invert my normal formula here. Uh, usually after the main text, I might present a, a kind of appendix of an extra little incident from some other source. Um, and today we're going to have an introductory extract. This is a fun little account from the 12th century historian Ordric Vitalis, uh, who describes one reaction to a proclamation against clerical marriage from uh, 1119. This account is in Book 12, Chapter 25 of his Historia Ecclesiastica, as translated by Thomas Forrester. Meanwhile, Satan, that malicious and restless spirit who deceived the first man by means of the serpent, was filled with grief when he saw the kings and great warriors restored to peace through the grace of God, and began to sow the tares of fatal discord among the priests in the Lord's temple. Geoffrey, the archbishop, having returned to Rouen from attending the council at Rennes, held a synod in the third week of November, and stirred up by the late papal decrees, dealt sharply and rigorously with the priests of his diocese. Among other canons of the council which he promulgated was that which interdicted them from commerce with females of any description, and against such transgressors he launched the terrible sentence of excommunication. As the priests shrunk from submitting to this grievous burden, and in loud mutterings amongst themselves vented their complaints of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit to which they were subjected, the archbishop ordered one Albert, a man free of speech who had used some offensive words, I know not what, to be arrested on the spot, and he was presently thrust into the common prison. This prelate was a Breton, and guilty of many indiscretions, 
warm and obstinate in temper, and severe in his aspect and manner, harsh in his censures, and, withal, indiscreet and a great talker. The other priests, witnessing this extraordinary proceeding, were utterly confounded, and when they saw that, without being charged with any crime or undergoing any legal examination, a priest was dragged like a thief from a church to a dungeon, they became so exceedingly terrified that they knew not how to act, doubting whether they had best defend themselves or take to flight. Meanwhile, the archbishop rose from his seat in a violent rage, and hastily leaving the synod, summoned his guards, whom he had already posted outside, with instructions what they were to do. The archbishop's retainers then rushed into the church with arms and staves and began to lay about them, without respect of persons, on the assembled clergy, who were conversing together. Some of these ecclesiastics ran to their lodgings through the muddy streets of the city, though they were robed in their albs. Others snatched up rails and stones which they chanced to find and stood on their defense, whereupon their cowardly assailants betook themselves to flight and sought refuge in the sacristy, followed closely by the indignant clergy. The archbishop's people, ashamed of having been discomfited by an unarmed, tonsured band, summoned to their aid in the extremity of their fury all the cooks, bakers, and scullions they could muster in the neighborhood, and had the effrontery to renew the conflict within the sacred precincts. All whom they found in the church or cemetery, whether engaged in the broil or innocently looking on, they beat and cuffed, or inflicted on them some other bodily injury. Then Hugh of Longville and Onskatil of Cropus, and some other ecclesiastics of advanced age and great piety, happened to be in the church, conversing together on confession and other profitable subjects, or reciting, as was their duty, the service of the hours to the praise of God. The archbishop's domestics were mad enough to fall on these priests, treated them shamefully and so outrageously that they were hardly restrained themselves from taking their lives, though they asked for mercy on their bended knees. These old priests, being at length dismissed, made their escape from the city as soon as they could, together with their friends who had before fled, without stopping to receive the bishop's license and benediction. They carried the sorrowful tidings to their parishioners and concubines, and, to prove the truth of their reports, exhibited the wounds and livid bruises on their persons. The archdeacons and canons and all quiet citizens were afflicted at this cruel onslaught and compassionated with the servants of God who had suffered such unheard-of insults. Thus the blood of her priests was shed in the very bosom of Holy Mother Church, and the Holy Synod was converted into a scene of riot and mockery. The archbishop, overwhelmed with consternation, retired to his private apartments, where he concealed himself during the uproar. But shortly afterwards, when the ecclesiastics had betaken themselves to flight, as we have already related, his wrath subsided, and going to the church he put on his stole, and sprinkling holy water, reconciled the church which he had polluted and his sorrowing canons. A report of this execrable tumult came to the king's ears, but he was so much occupied by other affairs that he deferred giving any redress to the injured parties. The defenders of clerical marriage lost out in the Western Church until Protestantism, but the success of the marriage ban had its own side effect, which was a rise in clerical mistresses and concubines. Which isn't to say these didn't exist before priests were forbidden from marrying. Uh, of course they did. But when a priest can no longer have a legitimate lover, it doesn't mean that those 
lovers cease to exist. It just makes them necessarily illicit. But for all the ribald tales about libidinous clergy and medieval folktales and poetry and history, there's actually been some speculation that many a so-called concubine uh, quite possibly lived monogamously as the priest's wife in all but legal status. It's kind of analogous to many long-term homosexual relationships before gay marriage was legally recognized. Just because a relationship is denied the legal status of marriage doesn't mean that there weren't plenty of partners who lived functionally as spouses. There's an unwholesome temptation, as history shows, to assume that because a relationship is perceived by authority as illicit and sinful, that it would just naturally devolve into debauchery. And plenty of medieval moralists gave right into that temptation. The, the temptation to make assumptions, that is, not the debauchery. So we might keep that in mind as we try to perceive the different relationships portrayed in today's text, um, thinking beyond the overt biases of the chronicler. As I said at the start, uh, I'll be reading from the Lanarkost Chronicle, as translated by Sir Herbert Maxwell. We'll start with an uninterrupted series of events presented in the entry for the year 1272, um, and then we'll jump forward to a couple of individual incidents of thematic relevance that I've pulled out from some later years for us, uh, one from 1282 and one from 1290. And so, in the year of the consecration of Pope Gregory X, there arose, as is reported, a great dispute in the Curia over the election of William Wishart to the bishopric of St. Andrews, many of them raising so many objections that the head of the church himself, having examined the objections set forth in writing, vowed by St. Peter that if a moiety of the allegations were brought against himself, he would never seek to be Pope. At length, by intervention of the grace and piety of Edward, he, Wishart, was consecrated under the Pope's dispensation. For the sake of example, I do not hesitate to insert here what befell him later when he applied himself to his cure. Indeed, it is an evil far too common throughout the world that many persons, undertaking the correction of others, are very negligent about their own conduct, and while condemning the light offenses of simple folk, condone the graver ones of great men. There was a certain vicar, of a verity lewd and notorious, who, although often penalized on account of a concubine whom he kept, did not on that account desist from sinning. But when Bishop William arrived on his ordinary visitation, the wretch was suspended and made subject to the prelate's mercy. Overcome with confusion, he returned home and, beholding his doxy, poured forth his sorrows, attributing his mishap to the woman. Inquiring further, she learnt the cause of his agitation and became bitterly aware that she was to be cast out. Put away that notion, quoth she to cheer him up, and I will get the better of the bishop. On the morrow, as the bishop was hastening to the vicar's church, she met him on the way, laden with pudding, chickens, and eggs, and on his drawing near she saluted him reverently with bowed head. When the prelate inquired whence she came and whither she was going, she replied, My lord, I am the vicar's concubine and I am hastening to the bishop's sweetheart, who was lately brought to bed, and I wish to be as much comfort to her as I can. 
This pricked his conscience. Straight away he resumed his progress to the church, and, meeting the vicar, desired him to prepare for celebrating. The other reminded him of his suspension, and the bishop stretched out his hands and gave him absolution. The sacrament having been performed, the bishop hastened away from the place without another word. About this time, there departed this life a certain prebendary of Howden Church named John, a man of honorable life, passing his days modestly and without ostentation, skilled in astrology, given to hospitality and works of mercy. He began to build a new choir to the church at his own expense, and foretold that the rest should be finished after his death, which saying we now perceive more clearly in the light, for, having been buried in a stately tomb in the middle of the choir itself, he is revered as a saint, and we have beheld, not only in the choir, but the wide and elaborate nave of the church, completed through the oblations of the people resorting thither. In the same church, there lived at that time another master, called Richard of Barnaby, a true and pure man who, having surrendered his private means, was residing at Gisburn in return for his money. He was formerly well known in the kingdom of Scotland as a cleric of the religious community of Kelso. On leaving that kingdom, he commended his nephew, who is still living, to Sir Patrick Edgar, knight for education and service. After a lapse of years, at the above-mentioned time, he ended his life in a fatal manner when his nephew in Scotland, feeling his bed shaken, was putting on his garments or shoes. And behold, a bird the size of a dove, but differing in appearance by its variety of color, entered by the chimney of the house and attacked the said youth with its wings, striking him with so much noise that the people in the kitchen wondered at the sound of the blows, and the lad, thus belabored, sat still as though stunned. This the bird did thrice, retiring each time to the beams of the roof. After about the space of a month had elapsed, the youth went on business to Kelso, and on drawing near heard all the bells of the monastery sounding. Entering within the walls, he asked what was the cause of the bell ringing. Do you not know, they said, that your uncle, our clerk, has died at Gisburn on such and such a day and hour? The abbot received the news yesterday, and today is commemorating him. What lesson such an apparition was intended to convey, let him who readeth explain. From 1282 About this time, in Easter week, the parish priest of Inverkeething, named John, revived the profane rites of Priapus, collecting young girls from the villages and compelling them to dance in circles to the honor of Father Bacchus. When he had these females in a troop, out of sheer wantonness, he led the dance, carrying in front, on a pole, a representation of the human organs of reproduction, and singing and dancing himself like a mime, he viewed them all and stirred them to lust by filthy language. Those who held respectable matrimony and honor were scandalized by such a shameless performance, although they respected the parson because of the dignity of his rank. If anybody remonstrated kindly with him, he, the priest, became worse than before, violently reviling him. And whereas the iniquity of some men manifestly brings them to justice, so in the same year, when his parishioners assembled according to custom in the church at dawn in penance week, at the hour of discipline, he would insist that certain persons should prick with goads others stripped for penance. 
the Burgesses, resenting the indignity inflicted upon them, turned upon its author, who, while he as author was defending his nefarious work, fell the same night pierced by a knife, God thus awarding him what he deserved for his wickedness. From 1290 There happened on Christmas Day something to which I give a place here by way of a joke, and for the sake of an old saw, that gamblers and loose livers always come to poverty. Now there was in the parish of Well, in the district of Richmond, a careful but profligate cleric, proctor for the rector. He kept unlawful company with the pretty daughter of a certain widow in the village, keeping her privately in the house of the absent parson, seeing that there was nobody who could restrain him from doing so. But when his bed was set in the great upper chamber of the mansion, his mastered steward arrived unexpectedly, coming to this northern region to collect the rents of the churches, whereof, being at once ecclesiastic and king's chaplain, he had too many. The proctor, being obliged to make way for the steward, set about moving his bed, but for the life of him he could not think where to hide his bedfellow, that she might not be seen. He placed her, therefore, in a secret, strong, and vaulted, but narrow, cell under the entrance to the upper chamber, where he used to keep the rents and valuables of the church because of the security of the place. The girl, when she beheld around her plenty of cash, nor could expect any other way to provide a competency for herself, thrust into her bosom a bag containing ten marks, and pretending that she required to withdraw, requested the proctor, whom she called privily, to allow her to go out. He, suspecting no deceit, allowed this daughter of guile to depart, and on the morrow, when he was obliged promptly to render account and acquit himself of what he had received, he found himself cheated by his whore, in consequence whereof he lost his appointment. So, most of our lesson for this text was front-loaded in the first half of the episode, um, so I'm going to try to keep it fairly light here as we wrap things up. One thing that's interesting about the priest concubines that we meet in this text is how much agency they're given in their narratives. Both the vicar's concubine and the proctor's paramour are portrayed as survivors, who are more than capable of looking after their own interests. And in the case of the vicar's concubine, she effectively saves the career of her lover through a quite clever and independently devised ploy. Now, the downside is that the agency of these women is presented in a way that reinforces misogynist beliefs about womanly deceit and wiliness. Uh, so, as is often the case, what the narrative seems to give with one hand, it takes away with the other. Uh, also, the terminology used to describe these women is interestingly varied and vacillates somewhat in its moral judgment. The first word used to describe the vicar's concubine in the first story is palex, which means a kept mistress, usually specifically in contrast to or in competition with a wife. The chronicler also calls her an amasia, a lover, with amo in there, uh, which our translator renders rather quaintly as his doxy, a word which the Oxford English Dictionary tells me comes from the cant of early modern thieves and beggars. 
in her own dialogue, the vicar's concubine calls herself, without any obvious shame, the vicar's concubine. She says, Ego sum ilius vicarii concubina. And when she says she's headed to meet the bishop's sweetheart, the Latin is that she's traveling ad episcopi delectam, literally to the bishop's chosen one or favorite, though delectam also has the common meaning of one's beloved. Whereas the terms surrounding the vicar's concubine are fairly clear about marking out the non-marital nature of this relationship, I think they nonetheless suggest a kind of stable relationship and domestic intimacy. The epithets for the proctor's girl in the last story are rather more pointed. In our translation, they seem to start out a bit neutral before ending with a sharply judgmental tone. Um, At first, she's the pretty daughter of a certain widow. Uh, Though the Latin here is electam filiam cuiustam widue. I would translate electam, which is a participle of the verb elicio to allure or entice, uh, I translate that as seductive rather than pretty. Um, then she's a lecatricum or bedfellow, fairly literal translation. And then you get daughter of guile, fraudis filiam. And then in the end, she is a prostitute, uh, meritrix, the Latin source for our English word meretricious, uh, which we use just to mean lying or deceitful, but is rooted in the term for prostitution. The vicar's concubine was trying to save herself from being put out of the house, and so a certain degree of mercenary motive is suggested there, um, but nothing that fundamentally is incompatible with love as well. The widow's daughter gets painted almost entirely in terms that commingle sex and money, desire and greed. I find it a bit surprising that the mistress in the tale that's ostensibly framed as a finger-wagging example of Episcopal hypocrisy is given the more sympathetic portrait, and that the mistress in the tale told as a bit of an amusing joke, a causa ludi, is treated far more venomously. Then again, the idea that a joke would be more misogynistic than a cautionary tale probably shouldn't be surprising at all. The last thing to note just briefly is the other example of seemingly unpriestly behavior on display uh, in today's text, and that's the case of John of Houghton, the skilled astrologer. I think we'll have to do medieval ideas about astrology in their own episode, um, if I can find a good text for it. I'm skeptical that actual astrological treatises make for good listening, Um, so I'll have to dig up a good astrologer story. Anyway, I thought I had a decent sense of what astrology's status was um, in the Middle Ages. That is, unlike how we perceive it today, at the time it was simply seen as a form of science, that it didn't inherently conflict with Christianity because it was just another tool for understanding the ordering of God's creation. But a bit of further research into the subject has complicated that picture quite a bit for me. Uh, So I think we're going to have to revisit attitudes towards astrology at a future date. And with that, let's finish up. Our riddle from last episode came from the early 16th century printed book, the Demons Joyus. It was, which be the most profitable saints in the church? And the answer, as given in the book, they that stand in the glass windows, for they keep out the wind for wasting of the light. Now, 
I'll confess that the answer to this riddle initially confused me. Not the first part, that's straightforward enough. Uh, the saints of the riddle are those figures represented in the stained glass windows, and that's the wordplay twist of the riddle. We expect saints in a church to be relics or supernatural presences, but here the word saints is really just a synecdoche for windows. Uh, no, the part that I struggled to parse was, for they keep out the wind for the wasting of the light. Again, the first part's fine. They keep out the wind. That's what windows do. But what does for the wasting of the light mean? I imagined it meant that by blocking out the wind, the windows prevented the light inside the church from being wasted. But how would wind waste the light? Bearing in mind that the light inside 16th century churches would be mainly from sources of open flame, you know, mostly candles, but also lamps, the wind would blow the candles out. But that doesn't waste light. If anything, it kind of helps to conserve candles. I couldn't see where the waste was. I even tried to make sense of it as somehow relating to the way stained glass keeps the cold wind out, but also partially blocks the sunlight and gives you a weak interior light. Of course, the answer is embarrassingly simple. For all that I'd been mindful of 16th century lighting technology, I'd failed to mentally adjust to 16th century English usage. In fact, my initial reading was exactly right. The windows prevent the wind from wasting the light of the candles. The difference is that wasting doesn't mean expending without profit or advantage, as we usually mean it now, and as I think I was primed to expect by the appearance of the word profit in the riddle itself. But here, wasting takes its older and more original meaning of simply to ruin or destroy, or indeed, extinguish. This meaning of waste was the dominant meaning in Middle English. Our modern sense of to use ineffectively is also in use in Middle English, but the more aggressive sense of actively ruining, destroying, or killing something was dominant. The two senses are linked, of course, like in the word wasteland. Uh, wasteland is both land that has been laid waste. When you see waste in the Doomsday Book, for example, it usually means land or settlements that had been devastated by the warfare of the conquest and of William's harrowing of the North. But that wasteland in the Doomsday Book is also, by virtue of that devastation, land which is unprofitable or currently useless. As I was perusing the OED's entry for waste as a verb, I also stumbled on something else interesting. One of the sub-meanings of waste, meaning number eight, in fact, is to spend or pass time, among other things, like miles on a journey can be wasted, or indeed money can be wasted, but just in the sense of spent. Um, so this is the idiom, to waste time, but it doesn't have the negative quality of fruitlessness that we would give it today with the more common, modern meaning of waste. Uh, this uses the aggressive meaning for waste. It is expending, using up, consuming, eroding, and indeed killing time. Though again, with not quite as negative a sense as that phrase has now. But the difference of meaning can lead to a bit of linguistic culture shock, as we see in some example quotations in the OED, such as in Shakespeare's As You Like It. When Celia says of the Forest of Arden, I like this place and willingly could waste my time in it. She doesn't mean she'd be throwing her time away spending it in the forest. She just means she could happily pass her time there in the forest. 
The semantic dissonance is even stronger in this line from Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto. I will withdraw into the neighboring monastery and waste the remainder of life in prayers and tears for my child. Presumably the speaker doesn't think these prayers and tears are a waste of time, as we would mean it, um, but just means to live out the rest of their days grieving in the monastery. The other interesting quirk of waste, as touched on in the link between wasting time and killing time, is that in modern underworld lingo, we also have to waste, meaning to kill, as in Knuckles pulled out his forty-five and wasted that copper. The OED includes this meaning, but tracks it only back to the 1960s, and it does appear to be a novel invention. While wasting is associated with death in Middle English usages, and certainly applies to the violent destruction of inanimate objects, it doesn't really look like it's used to mean the killing of human beings uh, outside of a slow death through disease, either natural or artificial, such as by poison or starvation. Um, but it's still kind of like the collective slang unconscious reached back to medieval English in redefining waste, jumping past the modern sense of throwing away and seizing on the old harrowing, pillaging, and annihilating sense. All right, so that was our riddle, in which I kind of snuck in a bonus medieval mystery word. Um, but we'll have a proper mystery word for next time. That word? Drast. D-R-A-S-T. Drast. Is it an obscure alien race in Doctor Who mythology? Uh, apparently it is, but that's not the meaning I'm looking for. What do I mean? Well, tune in in two weeks or so to find out. While you're waiting, you can follow up with us in the usual places on Twitter at MDT Podcast, at our aforementioned website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, or by sending an email to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>